in terms of the general feeling of it, broadly speaking, I would say it is the transition that you make from feeling like you're always having to sort of scrap for things and fight for things to just having more ease in the process because people know who you are. And if you're emailing somebody even cold, they'll be like, oh, good, I've wanted to meet you or something like that. It's just everything becomes a lot easier. In a world of career uncertainty, there is one variable you have total control over, yourself. Welcome to Forever Employable Stories, where expert digital transformation consultant and successful entrepreneur Jeff Gotthelf will share conversations with unique and inspiring individuals who have taken charge of their professional lives, leveraged their expertise, built an audience, and future-proofed their careers so you can learn how to do the same. Here's your host, Jeff Gotthelf. There's probably nobody more perfect to be on Forever Employable Stories than Dory Clark. Not only did she write the foreword to the book, but her entire career has been building and creating expertise at self-reinvention and helping others make significant changes in their lives. Dory is a coach. She's a consultant. She's an author. She's listed as one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world, according to Thinkers 50. And she's the number one communication coach in the world, according to Marshall Goldsmith Coaching Academy as well. You can find her writing on Time Magazine, Forbes, NPR, Fast Company, and in her books, most recently, The Long Game, published by Harvard Business Review Press. I think you'll find the conversation interesting, enlightening, and most of all, practical and educational. Enjoy. Hey, folks. Welcome to another episode of Forever Employable Stories. Very, very excited this time around to have multiple-time author, professor, one of the thinkers, 50 the author of the forward for Forever Employable and an advocate for building a personal brand with your recognized expertise. Please welcome to the show, Dory Clark. Dory, welcome to Forever Employable Stories. Hey, Jeff. Thanks. So good to be here. I'm thrilled to be here and it's been fun watching your success and I've always been grateful for your participation in the Forever Employable Project. For the folks who don't know who you are, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do and how you got there. Yeah, absolutely. The way that I think about what I do is that I help good, smart people and organizations get their message heard in a crowded and noisy environment. And there's a few ways I do it. I teach executive education at Duke and at Columbia. I write books. You mentioned some of them. My most recent one, which just came out, is called The Long Game. I do online courses and speaking and coaching, all of that mix but really the goal is to try to help people fight back and become part of the signal and not the noise. It's really hard these days. It feels like there's, if nothing else, it feels like there's a lot of noise. I think the signal signal filters through occasionally, but it's really difficult. Do you focus primarily on individuals, organizations? I have different offerings for each. So most of my executive coaching work, and I run masterminds as well, and also an online course called and community called Recognized Expert. And that's really aimed at individuals. Some of them work inside companies. A lot of them are independent practitioners, professional service providers, 
et cetera. And they know intimately that there is a push toward commoditization in the marketplace. And really the only way that they can build their business and charge premium fees is to get their expertise recognized. So I help them do that. But I also have partially buoyed by my executive ed teaching work and my books, I have a fairly significant practice doing speaking. This took a slightly different form during COVID where it was a lot of webinars. But as we were just discussing, it's starting to come back with in-person talks in the United States. So that's exciting because that was also a fairly significant piece of the work that I did before the pandemic. Amazing. One of the things that you look back at through your career, you were a journalist at one point. And a lot of folks think about, you know, especially like journalism, for example, it feels like one of those careers that people keep forever, for a long time. But you decided to transition out of journalism and move on to something else. Why did you decide to, to leave journalism? Well, I have a very, a very pithy answer for it, which is that I was forced to. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. So the other, the other fact that, of course, has governed journalistic life over the past two decades is that the ranks have dramatically decreased. In fact, between 2000 and 2015, 40% of American journalists lost their jobs. Wow. So when we think about the rise of fake news and people don't trust the news media, well, part of it is that there's not much news media left. We used to have a really robust ecosystem of people who would do things like work for town papers and report on city council meetings and things like that. And so much of that has unfortunately evaporated because of changing business models. But the truth is, I probably would still be in journalism. I felt like it was a very noble calling and something that I enjoyed. But I was laid off very early on. I was a year into my job. And what is often forgotten is that the year 2000 was the most profitable year on record for the print journalism industry. You know, we were just raking in money. Anyway, it was a very precipitous fall. And I was sort of a victim of that in the last in, first out sort of scenario. I had been hired in the year 2000. And so a year later, Craigslist was starting to pinch the revenues of the paper that I worked at, which was very heavily dependent on classified ads. So I was out the door and I tried to get another job in journalism and nobody was hiring. So I needed to switch. It's really interesting, right? I mean, look, this journalism is, is a really great example of this, but we're seeing a lot of, we're seeing a lot of transition jobs moving on, moving, either being left in the past, folks being downsized, being commoditized. And it's interesting because it forces us to start to rethink what it means to be employed, what it means to be employable, what it means to have a career. Those types of events, the kind of things that we're seeing today with this concept of the, the great resignation and the lack of corporate loyalty, when things get tough, sorry, last in, first out, you're gone, really leaves us dependent on ourselves more than anybody else, I think, for our careers. We tend, to, we tend to rely on our employer or some other kind of entity to help us get through it. But the reality is it's on us. And so, so you leave journalism and then ultimately you end up starting to write books at some point. So let's talk about how you got that first book deal. Yeah. So about five years after I left journalism, had to leave journalism. I had done a mix of things in between. I had worked on political campaigns, doing press for them. I had run a nonprofit. 
But in 2006, I decided to launch my own business doing consulting, primarily consulting, but later the the mix of other activities came into the fold. And so a couple of years into that, I had built up enough of a business that I had money coming in. I had some clients, but I realized it was time to level up in some ways. I had never worked inside of an actual corporation, so I did not have a real pipeline to the kind of clients that could pay well, frankly. I was working for these little nonprofits or for government agencies, which definitely did not pay well. So I needed to change the dynamic somehow. And I realized that if I could write a book, this became kind of my holy grail, that that would increase my prestige in the marketplace. And plus, it was kind of just this bucket list goal that I always had wanted to do. So I pursued that pretty actively. So for two, in 2009, that was the year that I decided like, okay, this is it. This is the year I'm going to get a book deal. And so I went all in. This was my New Year's resolution. And so I did it exactly wrong. I, I didn't know what I was doing. So I wrote, I knew you needed to write a book proposal. So I wrote three different book proposals. Wow. And I was like, one of these is going to work. And of course, no, no, they didn't. None of them worked. And they all got you know, handed back to me basically saying, just like, call us when you're famous. <laughs> wow, yeah. And nobody was, up until 2008, I mean, my theory was not terribly wrong, but my timing was, because up until the sort of Great Recession in 2008, publishers, they ran fatter operations. And so they were more willing to take chances on unknown authors and like sort of try to break somebody. Post-recession, where they had some very dramatic cutbacks in the publishing industry, they were just like, look, if you don't already have a platform, if you don't already have a built-in audience, like we have no time for you, we have no patience, sorry. So I had to cool my heels. And this was part of you know my learning to play the long game. I hated every minute of it. It was very frustrating to me that I couldn't just get to what I wanted to do, which was write a book. But I took another two years of platform building and blogging and things like that in order to get enough traction that I was able to eventually land my first book deal in 2011, that turned into, again, slow process, that turned into my first book, which was published in 2013. You will note this is four years after I decided, this is the year, uh, and that was called Reinventing You. (laughs) Got it. And so talk about, it's really interesting. I used to be a touring musician years and years ago, and getting record deals, which seemingly are meaningless these days, but like 25, 30 years ago, getting yeah, a record deal. Did you deal have was, a record deal? No, no, because getting a record deal back then, even back then was, you know, you, you had to say, well, have you sold 10,000 of your own CDs out of the van, right? Did you have a, do you have a platform? And we were never that successful. We got close, but, but never close enough. So the publishers are hesitant to sign you at first because, well, you don't have a platform, you're not famous. Okay, you come back a couple of years later and you've got this, you start to build a platform, start to build recognition. You sign your first book deal, publish the book. What's considered a success with a book? There's so many books that come out every year, right? What's considered a success from your perspective as an author and from your experience now having written several books with publishers from their perspective? And really, like, how do you guarantee the next book? Yeah. So there's, of course, a lot of ways to answer this question. I would say at a minimum, because now there are over a million books published every year in the United States alone. Now, of course, the vast majority of these are self-published, but it begins to show you the scale of what you're competing against. 
And also, as you might imagine, as the numbers increase, you know, it's not like the average consumer is buying 100 books a year. They are not. They're buying <laughs> a handful of books every year. So the, the numbers just do not add up. And it means that the average book sells something like 500 copies over its entire lifespan. It's just stunning, stunning numbers. So as a minimum threshold, if you are doing, I mean, certainly this would be true for a self-published book, but if you're doing a commercially published book, sort of the first threshold is if you can sell more than 5,000 copies, that's actually considered a moderate success in that, oh, wow, you were actually able to move some copies. Now, better to sell more, of course, but if you're looking for kind of an initial stepping stone to say, oh, okay, this is not a vanity project where your mom and a cousin buy it, you know, you're actually able to move to move some. Selling 5,000 copies within the first year is not a bad metric to aim at. If you can do 10,000, so much the better. But that's a piece of it. Another factor, again, if it's a commercially published book, is you are typically paid. This is not true for hybrid publishers, but if you're doing a commercially published book, you are paid in advance. And you know, much like a legal retainer, it's something that you kind of like earn out against. So a measure that the publisher certainly would look at is have you earned out your advance? Meaning, did they turn a profit? Did they recoup the proceeds? There's a guy I know years ago that got a $200,000 advance for his book. And I was like, oh my God, Like it was so much money. It was for his first book. I did not wow. get $200,000 for my first book. Me neither. But <laughs> yeah, but the issue was his book didn't sell very well and he's yeah. not ever written another book. And I got paid a lot less, but I earned out. And yeah. so I'm now, I mean, who knows whether he wanted, he would have wanted to write more books, but, but the fact remains, you know, I'm now on book number four because I had a little bit of a lower bar to surmount, but I was able to surmount it. So the profitability is always a, a question as well. Interesting. How do you think about the success of books, Jeff? Yeah, it's interesting. It's a good question. And I, I always thought, particularly with, I, so I've published with two different publishers. I've published with O'Reilly, tech publisher, and I've published with Harvard Business Review Press, which you publish with as well. My, my, I feel slightly differently about each one. O'Reilly, O'Reilly's model always felt like a venture capital model where they would take a little bit of money and sprinkle it on a hundred different, com different companies, a hundred different books, right? hundred different authors, knowing full well that 50% of those were never going to finish writing anything, right? And of the 50% that actually finished, half of those would actually be worth publishing. And of the 25% that we published, you know, 10% of those would earn out, earn out and pay for the other 100, roughly speaking. And because of that, the goal was to be one of those 10% that actually earned out because that, that would at least make you more, to your point, more favorable to them for another book or the next, the next project or be a part of their event series or, or whatever it is. I think, look, it's interesting though. You could look at it from a, a variety of facets. Like, obviously, selling the number of books is important, and it's important to me. I look at that number a lot for the books that I've written. But, like, take a book like Lean UX. Lean UX was my first book. We just published the third edition of Lean UX. So it's been a decade. Oh, good for you. Yeah. Third edition just came out. And over, over its lifespan, it sold 120,000 copies, something like that. Like, it's been pretty, pretty successful overall. Yeah. Anything over 100,000 copies really qualifies as a hit in today's marketplace. And, you know, it's, I mean, for a niche book, you know, a tech publisher, 
it's done really well. Now you could argue that, and I get I get a a really nice little royalty check every month that allows me to take my wife out to a fancy dinner once a month, and that's lovely, right? However, Lean UX, the book, over the ten years that it's been published, has generated millions of dollars in consulting revenue for me. Millions. If it only sold five thousand copies versus the hundred and twenty thousand that it sold, and still generated those millions of dollars of revenue, then it's a hit. It's a success. So you really have to look at it from a variety of different angles to figure out sort of what success ultimately looks like, right? What what other opportunities did it create for you? Yeah, that's an excellent point. It goes back to a critical question that sometimes people overlook, which is because you are doing this book and it is, if you're doing it right, this is going to be the thing that you are focused on for multiple years not just the writing, but then the marketing of it and talking about it. This is a minimum, probably three-year project all in, maybe maybe five. Is this really the thing that you want to be focusing your business toward? So you're mentioning like the back end with consulting and things like this. You want to make damn sure up front that you are choosing a topic where when people read this book, they say, oh, I want to hire him for this. And if those things are not aligned, it can cause real problems or prevent you from earning that backend revenue that is so critical. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's, there is that multi-year commitment. It does feel like, and you know this feeling, right? It does feel like when you're done writing, it's this, this amazing weight has been lifted off your chest, a sigh of relief, but it's like, okay, and now the work begins again, right? To actually push this forward. Let's talk about publishing though, because you, you touched a little bit about, about kind of the choices between publishers. And I get this question all the time. So I'm curious about your take on this. So you've published with HBR Press. You said the vast majority of books are self-published. What are your thoughts between kind of getting a proper publisher, the pros and cons of getting a proper publisher versus self-publishing? Yeah. So I get asked this question very frequently in general and by folks in my recognized expert community, because it is a viable question now. It used to be 10 years ago that self-publishing was fairly stigmatized. It's like, oh, poor you. Couldn't get anyone to bite, huh? Right. But now it's a perfectly respectable choice. And so it is important to really be thoughtful about asking yourself what you are optimizing for. So on the side of the ledger toward self-publishing, one element, of course, is speed. If you have a topic that is time sensitive, the traditional publishing process, it's just kind of baked in the way it is. It's going to take you a year if it is the world's fastest process and more typically 18 to 24 months to get a book out from the time you sign the contract to when it is in store shelves. So if there is anything remotely time sensitive about it, that's a hard route. Another element is the level of nicheness in what you are doing. A traditional publisher, they really don't want to publish a book that's going to sell 500 copies. That would be a big failure for them if they did. Now, if your goal is different, if you have a goal where, let's say you are a consultant and you are a consultant to a specific type of orthodontic practice, if you sell 500 copies of your book and it is intended to demonstrate your mastery and expertise in helping orthodontists increase their sales pipeline. If 500 people buy your book and they are your right target, 
that could be the biggest success ever because it, it could lead you to millions of dollars of backend revenue. So the goal is not selling lots of copies of your book. It's selling copies to the right people. So if you have a very niche focus, don't even bother trying to get with a, a big publisher. Do it yourself, and it can enable you to have a lot more control over that process. And you don't have somebody breathing down your neck wanting you to broaden it out when actually hyper-targeting is where your success is. The downside of self-publishing, you have to front the money yourself. And also, you have to manage the pieces yourself. But there are now these kind of hybrid publishers that you can go to where you pay them money and they do make it relatively seamless for you. They'll help you find a cover designer. They'll help you upload it to Amazon. They'll help you make sure that it can get stocked in the warehouses like Ingram or what have you. So it can take some of that pressure off, but you are expending some some revenue. That's sort of the deal with self-publishing. Now, with commercial publishing, Of course, one element is the ease because you don't have to worry about that at all. They're going to figure out all of the back-end pieces. They'll take care of it. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean you'll love everything. If you're paying for it, you get to pick the cover. If you're not paying for it, you might get into a fight with your publisher about it. Yeah, to say the least. Yeah, so there's there's always things like that. But in general... There's a a certain social status associated with going with a traditional publisher. You are able, if you say, oh, well, I publish with HBR, or I publish with HarperCollins, or I publish with whomever, you are sort of telegraphing the social proof that your book has made it through the vetting process, and experts, quote unquote, think it is good enough to be published. So there is some value to that. It makes it easier sometimes to get stocked in bookstores. It makes it easier sometimes to get invited to speak or to keynote at events. So that helps. You also do get the wisdom of their accumulated experience in terms of editing and other things that can be helpful. Hopefully, not every publisher has this, but some publishers like HBR also have built-in resources like they have email lists where they can promote some of your material to their readers. So those are some of the factors you might weigh. And that reflects my experience as well. I've, I've done both. I've done the proper publishing way and as well as the self-publishing way. And there is a speed. And look, and there's, there's a revenue aspect to it too. You get to keep a lot more of the royalties when you're self-publishing. But again, to your point, why are you doing this is a really great question, right? Are you trying to make a living as an author? Are you trying to build a business? Are you trying to you know, get some new clients? Really, really good questions to ask yourself. Let's talk about recognized expertise, okay? A lot of of the work that you do is getting folks to build up and on top of their recognized expertise. And so the question that I have for you is more along the lines of this qualitative assessment of how do I know I've been recognized? How do I know my expertise has been recognized? How much work should I expect to put in to get recognized? What does that even mean? Well, of course... This is slightly more art than science because everyone's definition is going to be a little bit different. And depending on your job, you might market different ways. Certainly, if you're inside a company, it might correlate to promotions or opportunities to meet and interact with prime clients or, or things like that. If you are somebody like a consultant or a, a professional service provider, it might be getting booked on the main stage instead of to do a workshop. It might be having a book publisher come to you instead of having to uh, submit a bunch of different proposals. It might be 
the fact that you can start to say, oh, I'd like X amount of money and the client doesn't quibble anymore. They just say, okay, all of those things are signs that you are becoming more and more of a recognized expert. And that can be quite valuable. So I think part of it is understanding upfront, what are the things that you want to optimize toward and then being able to track them. But in terms of the general feeling of it, broadly speaking, I would say it is the transition that you make from feeling like you're always having to sort of scrap for things and fight for things to just having more ease in the process because people know who you are. And if you're emailing somebody even cold, they'll be like, oh, good, I've wanted to meet you or something like that. It's just everything becomes a lot easier. So that's how I think about it. In terms of how long it takes to reach it, again, not a perfect formula, but what I have seen, because I, both in my own experience and now 600 people have been through my program. So I've, I've had the opportunity to watch a fairly broad cross-section of people work on these things. The estimate that I give, at least as a baseline for people, is that it generally takes, if you are putting in effort, it generally takes between two and three years of sustained effort in order to see really, you know, let's be honest, even sort of small results. It's that initial period that is so hard and where a lot of people drop off because you're seeing very little progress. But at a certain point, the growth curve becomes visibly exponential. And it's, you know, around usually year five that you actually start to see really marked progress, really marked growth, where all of a sudden it's like, oh, I guess I am getting somewhere. And people start to notice. And, you know, that's, that's where the overnight success takes over. It's interesting because I look at my own path to recognized expertise. I'd tell you it took me 15 years to get there. And then I see other folks. There's a gentleman we had in the first season of the podcast named Danny Thompson, who's a software developer. And five years ago, he was frying chicken in a gas station. And he decided that that was not how he wanted his life to continue. And he made a deliberate effort to change not only his, his occupation, but then he began to share that story and, and deliberately. And he's, I would argue he's built up a much bigger recognized expert following than mine in less than five years simply because of his very sustained effort to do this. He made a very deliberate decision to change his job and to build this platform for himself. And so, so that's really interesting. It's a fascinating story and he's very, very good at telling it. And so it's, it's absolutely worth a listen from season one of the episode. You have a new book. The book is called The Long Game, How to Be a Long-Term Thinker in a Short-Term World. And as I watch my daughters flip through their phones and things just fly by in half a second, it is a short-term world. What's the book about, Tori? The book, Jeff, is basically about how to apply the principles of strategic thinking to our own lives and our own careers. So often at work, during the workday, many professionals are great at this. You know, we, we do strategic thinking all the time when it comes to profit goals for the company and things like that. But we often fail to translate those principles into how we think about ourselves. And I think that that is an omission and that we need to focus that lens a little bit more because even with small things that we do, we can actually make a fairly large impact in terms of our overall outcome. If It's like anything, right? The interest compounds over time. So being a little bit thoughtful now about 
the decisions we're making can actually lead to dramatically different outcomes later on. It's resonating with me a lot, looking critically and strategically at, at my personal life, my professional life. Honestly, differentiating between the two is really difficult these days, just be working from home all the time, right? But recently, I've made some decisions to sunset some projects that I believe weren't yielding the results I was hoping for. It's, it's a bittersweet type of type of a thing. Like I put a lot of effort. There's that whole sunk cost fallacy thing. Well, if I just give it another year, I've already put in a couple. One more year, it's going to do it, right? How do you know when to do that? How do you know when to say, look, I have banged my head against the wall here for long enough and I should just change course and move somewhere else? And how do you know when to keep going to say, you know what? I have not banged my head against the wall long enough here. I should Let's keep bang banging a little more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How do you know when to make those decisions? This, of course, is the really important question because in the moment, it is almost impossible to tell the difference between something that isn't working and something that isn't working yet. And so how can you tease those two things apart? Because a year or two years down the road, the outcomes could look very different, but you want to make the right choice. So ultimately, you said something that I think is very telling and very helpful here, which is that the projects were not meeting your expectations. And I think that one area that we often overlook sometimes to our detriment is it is very common that really without thinking about it, we often jump into projects or initiatives without really taking the time to scope out what our expectations are. Like what actually would be a reasonable expectation for this? And just as one example, in the long game, I mentioned a 2018 shareholder letter that Jeff Bezos wrote to Amazon shareholders. And he told a story in it about a friend of his who hired a handstand coach and because she wanted to get better at handstands and yoga. And I know, right? Like, <laughs> it's kind of a crazy thing. Nonetheless, this is a fairly wise yoga handstand master because he mentioned that if you ask the average person how long they think it will take to do, you know, to become a master of yoga handstands, they will say, oh, maybe two weeks of practice. And the truth is, it takes six months of daily practice in order to be able to do this. You really have to invest. And just thinking about that, I mean, most people, if you haven't put a lot of time and thought into studying it, most people would say, okay, well, I might be off by a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I'm not guessing right, but they're probably thinking, well, maybe, you know, 30% off, you know, give or take. They are off by a factor of 12 in their estimate. The difference is two weeks versus 24 weeks. And so often our own guesstimates are like that. So I think the most important step right up front is to analyze who else has done what you want to do or something similar to it. What did it take them? Now, it's not to say that your path will be exactly the same, but it is also highly likely that it's not going to be 12x different unless you have somehow invented a radically new methodology that is far better. So we can be better around the edges, but understanding that, okay, this is likely to take six months really helps cushion the blow because otherwise, if you think it's going to take two weeks, at month three, you are going to quit and you are going to feel completely validated in your decision to quit because, oh, well, I tried this well beyond what it should have taken and it's just not happening. Well, it turns out actually you're only halfway there. You just don't know that. So I think understanding that key piece up front 
can help prevent a lot of heartache. Amazing. And what a fantastic tip to close the podcast with. Dory Clark, incredibly valuable as always. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for sharing your story. Thanks for sharing your expertise. Good luck with the new book. And I can't wait to help tell the world all about it. Jeff, I appreciate it. It's always a joy talking with you. I'll just mention for folks who want to dive even deeper into the long game, there's a free resource. It's a long game strategic thinking self-assessment and folks can download it at doryclark.com slash the long game. And it's really wonderful to have the chance to talk with you. Amazing. Thanks again. Hey, it's Jeff. Thanks again for joining me for this episode of Forever Employable Stories. If you enjoyed the show and learned something new, tell a friend. The best way you can help us grow is to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and send this episode to someone you think can benefit from it. As always, feel free to reach out and connect on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you. Do you know someone who has a great Forever Employable story? Someone who has built a platform and an audience using their unique skills and experience? If so, I want to talk to them. Send me a note at jeff at gothealth.co and let me know.